Hello, friends. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is Conversations with Consequences, the radio show of the Catholic Association, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays, and also on SiriusXM Channel 130. If you want to listen to our show as a podcast, go directly to your favorite platform or to the Catholic Association.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I can't believe that this is the next to last show of the year. It's been a really long year for all of us with COVID. Some of us have had it harder than others, but I think all of us have had it pretty hard. I'm sort of glad that it's coming to an end. We have our wonderful Christmas to look forward to. Wonderful always, not because of what we can expect materially or um even these days, can we can we even expect to be with the people that we love? But wonderful because it is a memorial of the, the celebration of the incarnation of our Lord, the act by which He assumed everything that troubles us, even our sin, and then took it up to heaven and, and swallowed it with love. This is our wonderful, our wonderful celebration this Christmas, and I'm hoping to really concentrate on that and uh, pray a lot uh, for Thanksgiving, for all the wonderful things that have happened this year, even in the face of the things that have been challenging. Um, Anyway, today our show will be interesting as always. We're going to be talking to uh, Saren Foster. She is the head of Feminists for Life, a very important and interesting organization. It sounds almost like an oxymoron, and we're going to hear a lot more from her about that. We're going to be talking to her about the big news about the uh, pornography distributor Pornhub deleting 80% of its content after being fiercely criticized for profiting from child rape and sexual trafficking. She knows a lot about this, and so she'll be talking to us about that. But first, as it is the end of the year, I've asked the whole entire TCA team here for a year-end wrap-up. As we look towards the new year, there were many pro-life and religious liberty accomplishments this past year, and we're going to cover the more important moves that were made by our outgoing administration to protect the most vulnerable and also to protect the faith. Also, what should we be looking out for as the new year coming along? And we're going to have a very Liberal administration taking control of the White House. So I'm happy to welcome my TCA colleagues and my dear friends, Maureen Ferguson and Ashley McGuire, to Conversations with Consequences. Thanks for joining me, ladies. Great to be with you, Gracie and Maureen. It's fun to have all three of us together. I'm so glad that the three of us could do this for the end of the year. You guys have been so wonderful to have on the show periodically all the time. You guys come on and and help me out and share your wisdom and your insight. Both of you um, have so much of that wisdom and insight and from different perspectives. So it's wonderful to have that on the show with us. Well, I'm really looking forward to looking back at this past year. It's been the most unusual year for so many different reasons, but we're in a transition here in Washington. So many things to talk about, so many things to reflect on about the last four years. I think one of my biggest takeaways the last four years in terms of the Trump administration is the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Her 
her appointment to the court will have been one of the most significant things, I think, of this whole administration, certainly of the past year. But the impact of having someone like her on the Supreme Court, someone who's so grounded in solid constitutional theory, of course, but but so grounded in an understanding of the human person that is so true, so beautiful, I think that's really going to resound for generations. And and not, that, not just on the abortion issue, but end-of-life issues. We've already seen the impact of her presence on the court on religious liberty cases involving all these pandemic restrictions on churches that are unjust and unfair and arbitrary. So we'll feel her the impact of her presence on the Supreme Court for many years to come. What means a lot to me about her, I know so many people, and I've, of course this is, this is reflected across the country for millions of people, I think, for millions of Americans, that people voted for Donald Trump, many of them, because of his power to put constitutionalists. And he really came through for these people. My husband is one of them. He, when he came, you know, to the point of, of voting for Trump or not four years ago, he finally, he looked at me and he said, you know, I'm just going to go for it because the Supreme Court means so much. And, and it's been a, a wonderful thing that he has done for all of people, for all Americans who, who really feel that the Constitution is what protects us from falling into the, the dysfunctions of so many other countries. And he, he did deliver. And, and I'm really happy about that. And I agree with Maureen that Amy Coney Barrett was such a great bookend to this administration because, you know, of the hundred, you know, more than 200 constitutionalist judges that the Senate was able to confirm over these past four years, which was truly an extraordinary accomplishment and I think will define the legacy of this administration. Hers was so incredibly unique being a mom to seven, including two adopted children, one child with special needs. And, you know, we let our kids watch the swearing in ceremony at the White House and to see Clarence Thomas, one of the first African-American justices, swearing in Amy Coney Barrett, one of the the first mom of school age children. And when he in his when President Trump turned to the camera and said something to the effect of to America's children, you know, you can accomplish anything that was really moving. My kids were really sort of wrapped with attention. And I thought it was a nice way to close out such a difficult year for everybody, including children, this sort of optimistic message that I think truly, you know, even with everything that's gone on this last year, uh, this idea of the American dream is still sort of flickering there and that that confirmation really sort of excited the imagination of a lot of, I think, American women who, you know, saw a lot of themselves in, in Amy Coney Barrett. And on that note, the fact that in these days when feminism has come to mean big sense, no, and, and the way most people think about it, something sort of angry and vulgar and very much in, in this narrow range where pro-life women are not welcome, where women who really enjoy their femininity, their their marriage, having a lot of children and, and filling that role that we feel so beautifully at home in a year like that, because that, that is the truth of the culture that we live in, a year like that to have Amy Coney Barrett, a woman who does both things so beautifully really embodies uh, a maternal feminism, a, a pro-life feminism, a hospitable feminism, a feminism that acknowledges the call of the home and, and the call of the husband, who's always calling. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I think we're all laughing a little too much on that one. Well, and, you know, remember the last four years started out with the Women's March, uh-huh. but sort of culminated in this. But also just a brief look at the last election, I think lost in so much of the sort of meta conversation about the election has been the fact that it was an extraordinary, a record year for pro-life women. I've, I've lost track of how many new pro-life women were elected to the House. I think it's something like 16. A lot of them are young women. They're minority women. They're, they're from all over the country. And so we sort of started out feeling like pro-life women were sort of marginalized from the broader conversation about feminism. But in fact, now it's been a, the last election was a real triumph for pro-life women. That's true. This really was like, it could have been called the year of the pro-life woman with Amy Coney Barrett at the top of the list there. But yes, it was, I think, 16 or there were still a few races still to be counted. It might even be 17 new pro-life women in the House of Representatives. And the Senate has several pro-life women now, which is really new and exciting development. And just to perhaps tick through some of the the pro-life policies, not only of the past year, but of the past four years, just to run through to remind people of the incredible advancements of the pro-life cause. When the administration first came in, they reinstated the Mexico City policy, which prevents our government from using our foreign aid dollars to promote abortion as a method of family planning overseas. The Mexico City policy was actually expanded to cover more than $8 billion in our global health assistance as part of our foreign aid. We've already talked, of course, about the 260 federal judges confirmed by the Senate, which um, little shout out to Senator Mitch McConnell for being the brilliant architect (laughs) of confirming all these incredible judges. But uh, the Title 10 regulations, which prevent um, domestically our family planning programs from funding abortion as a method of of birth control. And as part of our Title 10 program, for the first time, we funded all kinds of the government funded all kinds of new organizations, which don't include abortion at all. They offer comprehensive, authentic women's health care, but not abortion. And they, for the first time, were eligible for these Title 10 funds. There were all kinds of regulations from this administration on Obamacare to kind of separate out abortion and to protect conscience rights. I mean, I could go on and on on these. And and the administration and the very good people who are working in these key positions, because so often personnel is policy, the good people working in some of these key positions are really running through the tape of the administration. Just last week, um, the Justice Department issued a notice of violation to California because California has been mandating abortion coverage, even in Catholic health care plans. And this is a total violation of federal conscience laws, but the administration is now going after them. Another case just last week, the administration, the Department of Justice, sued the University of Vermont Medical Center because they forced a Catholic nurse who had made her objections to abortion known, but yet they forced her to assist in an elective abortion procedure. Again, I could go on and on about these accomplishments in the pro-life movement. And of course, all that is about to change. <laughs> Gracie, Rihanna. It's that, that, yeah, that's, uh, it's, uh, you're talking and I'm really happy. And at the same time, I'm being, I'm getting depressed. <laughs> Because I wonder how much of this is going to be changed on in week one. Sadly, a lot of things that uh, President Trump and his administration were able to move in the pro-life direction will be very easily moved back. Here's a very cheerful thing, Ashley. The Little Sisters of the Poor. Right. Well, the Little Sisters of the Poor finally had their decisive victory in court this year. I think it was in June in the, in the height of the pandemic. And 
you know, this is another area where the administration has been truly excellent in, you know, whether it's passing new executive orders that protect the conscience rights of religious employers like the Little Sisters of the Poor or the Department of Health and Human Services creating an entire new intra-agency office dedicated to protecting conscience rights, to, to actually enforcing regulations that are already on mm -hmm. the books to protect conscience rights for healthcare workers or to, you know, devising, strengthening uh, new regulations. And I think, you know, this is an area where we've seen incredible progress over the last four years. But, you know, unfortunately, I think it's an area where there's going to be a lot of conflict in the new administration, because I think it really is sort of one of the, if not the major front in, in, the, in the sort of culture wars is over the, the clash between religious liberty and sort of left-wing ideology. As, as it relates to those issues. And unfortunately, the incoming president's pick to run that agency has an absolutely horrific track record uh, when it comes to religious liberty. Gracie and I talked about this ad nauseum in, in, a, different, in a different segment, but it's, it's an area to watch. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and my good friends from the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson and Ashley McGuire, are with me today, and we're doing an end-of-the-year recap and looking forward to the next year, as much as we can in <laughs> these years of pandemic. You know, before we get into all the, we, we get into more of that, uh, Maureen and I have both had children that recently dealt with COVID, right, Maureen? And they did really well, both of them. That's right. My my daughter caught COVID Italian style. She was on a study abroad program in Italy and came down with she, she and a bunch of her fellow students came down with COVID and she bravely fought it off. Um, but it did it did linger for a while. And my daughter, the same thing. She's just getting over her COVID. She got it in London where she's where she's been living. And I'm so happy to report that she was able to get on that last plane out of London. <laughs> I think it's the last plane out of London. Um, and she's on her way home for Christmas. So that's really great. I don't know if that, that's going to be possible. You know, the, the effect of COVID on schools is a real, I think it's one of the most underreported COVID stories yes. of the year. One, one of the most underreported stories in general. What has happened with our nation's schools, the Catholic schools, in contrast to the public schools, and I know Ashley will have a lot to say about this, um, but I think the story of Catholic schools in this past year has been one of the most significant and underreported stories of the year. People on the left played politics with this issue, really. I think it's a national scandal because, you know, over after the shutdowns in the spring, when it was so clear that distance learning was completely failing our children, um, despite the best attempts of good people to make it work, um, over the summer, all the science showed clearly that schools could reopen in the fall safely. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommended they reopen. But of course, as soon as President Trump tweeted that the school should be reopened in the fall, there was this reflexive knee-jerk reaction on the left. And all of a sudden, the left and the teachers' unions really refused to return the teachers to the classroom. And they played politics with kids. And tragically, so many public schools never reopened this fall, leaving these kids to this totally inadequate system that's totally failing them. And predictably, all kinds of statistics are coming in now about the damage that's causing. And meanwhile, all 
almost every Catholic school in the country, you know, took the mantra of John Paul II, be not afraid. They made all sorts of um, accommodations to reopen safely according to CDC guidelines, but they reopened in person and there it's a smashing success story, really. I know Ashley has a lot to say about that because she's been working on that issue a lot. <laughs> Very fired up. Yeah, no, I think if this isn't the year of the pro-life woman, um, then it's the year of the Catholic school teacher. I think it's it's really highlighted for Americans how unique Catholic schools are in their authentic commitment to education, as evidenced by the fact that they basically all open and they fought to open. Um, they took the complete opposite approach of the teachers unions who fought to stay closed and they fought to open in a lot of cases in places where legislators and bureaucrats tried to close them down knowing full well that if they opened and if it was a success it would highlight all the more the politicization of what the teachers unions were doing and the sort of catastrophic failure of public schools i'm um, in contrast and i think you know here we are at the end of a semester and that is absolutely what has happened. You know, my kids are in a parochial school and they opened in September. They had to fight the local health officer to have the right to do it. And, you know, when teachers unions were driving around this area, dumping child-sized body bags on the grounds of their schools, what? our our administrators were putting together a 50-page plan to open safely. And we went an entire semester. We went a full half of the school year without a single closure related to COVID. And they absolutely took precautions. I never felt like my kids were in any way. And I truly think that the teachers and administrators at Catholic schools are the unsung heroes of this pandemic. And, and it was also an important opportunity for Catholics to remind the country that Catholic schools are incredibly unique in that they serve overwhelmingly low-income populations. 40% of Catholic schools are in the inner city. They provide a stellar education. They boast um, graduation rates and test score rates and college matriculation rates that, you know, shame the public schools. And they do it on often a fraction of the budget that the, that the public schools are doing. So it really not only did it sort of expose the teachers unions, but it also exposed this idea that, you know, throwing money at education is what solves the problem, that it really requires a much deeper commitment to education and an understanding of what education actually is. So, President Biden, President-elect Biden has said he wants to open schools in the first 100 days of office, which is just such a total <laughs> week sauce. Yeah, that's like I mean, for next first, year. Yeah, that's, that's late spring. And, you know, I say good luck to him. But if he wants to do that, what he ought to do is bring in the superintendents of, you know, Catholic schools and sit down with them and say, How did what you did do you it? do? How did you and, do and it? Al and also, if he's following the science, Dr. Fauci has said, close the bars and open the schools. The science right. has always been clear on this. What makes me sad is that school choice is such an important issue. And our schools, our Catholic schools, they were such a beautiful, shining example of why it's important for parents to have choice. So we have this issue of school choice. And, and amazing that, you know, we pour as a society so many billions of dollars into education and then end up giving these most of the children who go to public school a very faulty product um, that doesn't and and imagine the ones who need it the most are the are the ones who receive the worst schooling the worst education and the worst neighborhoods so how sad that uh, that is true that 
I think we can pretty much be sure that a president-elect Joe Biden administration will not be a friend school choice. And children will, as far as he's concerned and his administration, will continue to be consigned to these uh, failure academies. You know, I think for the coming year, education and Catholic education in particular is something to really keep an eye on for all of us to find ways to think about how we can support Catholic education. I mean, we are at a real transition point, a real pivot point in the country with the election. Um, you know, I have two parallel thoughts when we talk about all the pro-life and religious liberty advancements of the last four years and how so much of that is going to be rolled back almost immediately uh, in a Biden administration. Elections really do have consequences, and sometimes they are very real and tragic consequences. But of course, as Catholics, we know that our salvation is in our Lord. Um, and I, I think sort of a refocus on the education of children is a really important place for us to go and how can we better support Catholic schools because the political support will not be there. You know, I like that, Maureen, and because it's something that as, as Catholic parishioners, all of us can do. If our school parishes has a, a school associated with it, with, which is many, many parishes, um, we can be supportive of the school. We can offer uh, financial support. We can offer our hands, our time, our service. I know that my parish priest, for instance, our pastor, the school's a huge amount of, of trouble for him of just pure time and, and headaches. And he really needs all the assistance of his parishioners to make sure that that school keeps running as beautifully as it's running and also keeping costs down. I think that's important, too. It's easy to... It's easy to allow tuitions to rise, and then it, and then it gets out of out of the reach of the parishioners, which is a sad thing. And you know, on on the school front, but in a different in a different direction, one sort of important victory for this year, but also an area to watch, relates to the religious liberty of Catholic schools. Um, there was another Supreme Court decision that came out this summer that protected the rights of um, religious schools, not just Catholic schools, but religious schools, to employ teachers that adhere to the religious doctrines of that school. And that was sort of a nail biter of a case because mm -hmm. there was an attempt to, you know, basically uh, argue that Catholic school teachers don't qualify as um, ministers under uh, religious liberty law and and Catholic schools and, and religious schools fought back and said no absolutely if you're if you're teaching in a religious school you're infusing those beliefs in everything you do and I see this you know in the work that my kids bring home from school every single subject is infused with religion and whether you're a math teacher or a PE teacher um, at, a, at a religious school you are absolutely involved in in teaching the faith and the religious liberty of, of schools to be able to uh, decide who they're going to hire as teachers is essential. And then you look at um, some of the things we're already seeing where, you know, certain interest groups are out there saying one of the first things that a Biden administration should do is take away the accreditation of religious schools that don't hire teachers that adhere to left-wing ideology as it relates to um, things like gender ideology. And this is this is going to be an essential fight to preserve the right for our kids' schools to be able to continue to freely teach our children um, the faith and hire teachers who are going to teach them what we believe and not the opposite. Absolutely. There, there's so many things like that. Um, I think it was... Um 
uh, Archbishop Chaput, who wrote that we are becoming strangers in a strange land. Mm-hmm, um, it, it's a new experience for us as American Catholics, and I think we have to be really mindful of how we're teaching our children to live out the faith, because the world now is such a different world, in this country in particular, than the one that that we grew up in. And um, I, I wanted to call our listeners attention to a beautiful op-ed that Cardinal Dolan just had in the Wall Street Journal this week as we are you know entering this Christmas season he was reflecting about how it's kind of a new experience for Americans to be told we can't go to church I mean this is the first time I had to sign up on a sign up genius to get a place at Christmas mass um, because of all the restrictions put on our churches of course I don't have to sign up to cram into the mall with lots of people or go to the nail salon or but now we have to sign up to go to church and in some places the churches are being shut down or severely restricted um, but Cardinal Dolan op-ed really urged us to think bigger because around the world, of course, there are millions of persecuted Christians that are, um, you know, suffer violence that is almost unimaginable to us as Americans. And uh, he reminds us that persecution is at the heart of the Christmas story. You know, there was state-sponsored oppression. Um, That's where there was the flight to Egypt. Um, But to think about... um, uh, you know, in our in our end of the year giving and such, but to think about the um, the Christians in China who are suffering such um, suppression and destru- destruction of churches, uh, what's going on in Hong Kong, in Turkey, in Nigeria, there were twenty seven thousand Christians killed in Nigeria last year. Um, uh, you know, I mentioned China, of course, but um, in Saudi Arabia this Christmas, I believe there's about a million Christians who are not allowed to go to church. So just to kind of keep a global perspective, even as we're um, being mindful of the issues we face here at home. Oh, that's a beautiful reflection, Maureen. Thank you for sharing that with us and our listeners, because it is very important to put our little troubles on the on the big world stage and say, I can bear it. What about you, Ashley? What are you thinking now at the end of the year? Well, one thing I think was very encouraging to see as the pandemic dragged out was the way, you know, initially churches really uh, complied with regulations when we didn't know what we were dealing with. But um, seeing how as as things went on, the churches really stepped up and they said, no, actually, we're not going to sit back while you let restaurants and bars and nail salons open and require us to limit our services to 10 people outdoors. So I think it was encouraging to see revival of uh, energy of the faithful and pushing back on unfair restrictions, even in places where we're not dealing with what the kind of horrors that Maureen was documenting. And, And some people have pointed to the, the idea that there's a real vitality there that this pandemic has um, sort of exposed. And, and I hope that that's something that carries us into the next year because it's uncertain how long this will continue to go on. Well, I think you're right, Ashley. I think that a lot of those of us who were kept away from mass, which I think was everyone, most unless we had a resident priest, um, we've come to really appreciate and, 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 and cherish our, our daily encounter, our weekly encounter with 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 God and, and the Eucharist, in ways that we didn't even know we were capable of of, of doing. No, that, that kind of appreciation and, and cherishing. So I now in a, in a few days um, we will be encountering uh, Christ in, in in the Holy Family in the stable and welcoming Him in His great uh, adventure, the great adventure of the Incarnation. And so I thank I thank you, Maureen and Ashley. 
for doing this this Christmas special with me and talking about all the things that have happened in this past year, things to, to be really happy about, even even in the in the midst of our difficulties. So I hope you both have a happy Christmas. Thank you. Merry Christmas from you too as well. to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. In this segment, I'm happy to have with me now the one and only Saren Foster of Feminists for Life. She's always doing important work on the front lines for the unborn and the exploited. Welcome to the show, Saren. Thank you for having me, Chrissy. I'm just so pleased to be back on EWTN. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad. Well, you know, you have so much to share with us, and I want to get to the Pornhub issue, which you know so much about. But before we get there, could you tell us about your organization, Feminist for Life? It's fascinating, and we want to hear about it and what its aims are. Sure, Gracie. So Feminist for Life was founded a year before Roe v. Wade, and it was founded by women who saw that the abortion advocates in the movement were hijacking the feminist movement, the women's movement, which originally was about equality in the workplace, being able to go to different schools like men and, you know, just to be able to achieve different things than, than, than the traditional without throwing out the traditional. They, these women, the founders of Feminists for Life, became determined to try to reach out to now at, the Ohio, at an Ohio meeting. And at that meeting, they passed out anti-abortion literature and literally our co-founder, Pat Goltz, was basically excommunicated from now. They were, they were asked to leave, <laughs> or she was asked to leave, rather. So no tolerance for, for that, even back in the 70s, the early, early 70s. So Feminists for Life was founded a year before Roe v. Wade. And so we've been working, we specifically work on, as advocates and educators, to deal with the root causes that drive women to abortion. Everybody in the movement has different roles, whether it's post-abortion or pregnancy resources or, you know, different different outreaches. For us, it's how do we systematically eliminate the reasons why we why any woman would approach an abortion clinic. So we want to go back farther to a time when she she will not even consider abortion so that it becomes unthinkable for her. The way we do this is we have a college outreach program and we work, uh, we have a number of, good, of great speakers that goes to the campus. And right now, obviously, we're doing things virtually. And we'll be at the Cardinal O'Connor Conference. I'll be the guest speaker the night before because they're going to do a week-long event uh, from Georgetown to 850 students, which I bet will end up being 850 schools because so many kids are going to be watching from home. And then we, we also have a pregnancy resource forum, which we started at Georgetown. We brought that program across the United States. It became part of law to deal with pregnancy resources on campus and inspired that legislation. And we now have a, a website called Women Deserve Better. It's a help site. And we had in this past year, we were very nimble, very quick to really address COVID as it relates to what the primary caretakers in the home need. Basically women. They're taking care of their mothers, their grandmothers, their children, their husbands. I mean, everything is going on for her. So how could we help her? And really, especially those who are at highest risk of abortion. So if you look at our website, which is womendeservebetter.com, one of two websites, it helps women work, learn, live, and love better. So whether she's a student, whether she's mom who's 40, and now she's got a surprise baby on the way, maybe it's somebody just trying to return to school with a family. Maybe they're looking for uh, utility assistance because they're freezing to death right now because they haven't had income in a while. I mean, these pressures, all these pressures on women and girls and teens are what pushes many and unfortunately to abortion and so we want to help
help alleviate that, especially during this really hard time. And our new program, our teen outreach program, we ha- it is called Girls Deserve Better, like women deserve better. Girls deserve better, too. And we've done this because we want to reach college-bound students students before they reach campus and before they're in this culture that supports abortion, but also because so many now you're hearing about are being victimized by gangs. Many gangs have found out you can sell a pill once, but you can sell a teenage girl repeatedly. And it's happened in my neighborhood a number of times. We've seen it with Epstein and Maxwell. You've seen it more recently with a fashion mogul. I mean, the stories keep on coming out. And then there's, you know, the less famous people who are abusing women, of course, too, in private lives and so, and girls. And so we want to reach them as well. So we've got a new theme for that, which is Forever Priceless. And that was the idea of Joyce McCauley Benner, who's our resident expert on sex trafficking. She's actually worked with girls directly who were being trafficked and uh, has really taught me so much about what is going on before kids are getting to campus. And so we're adding this on. <laughs> Some people think we're that we're, we're kind of out there thinking you're going to have more programs on when you're when we've got COVID. But you know, there's a need, and we we know that we can position ourselves well. We have the creme de la creme of interns that come to Feminists for Life and help us give us ideas, teach me as much as we teach them in terms of social media and outreach and whatever. So we have a whole a whole page on Girls Deserve Better that's going to be growing and growing. We're going to have lots of program components for people who homeschool as well as for those who are in boarding schools, parochial schools, whatever, and um, and educate our parents along the way. And that's on our Feminist for Life side, Feminist for Life of America's uh, website and Facebook page and all that. But that's some of the things we're going to be doing this coming year. It's going to be a really exciting year to get ahead of abortion providers and predators and those who would protect the predators. Sarah, and I'm so glad you went over the history of Feminist for Life because I think it's really interesting how, and, and I think everyone needs to understand this very well, how the regular feminist movement, the ones that, the feminists that march on Washington and don't allow their pro-life sisters to march with them, um, how those that those feminists hijacked the, the very worthy drive to achieve a kind of equality in the workplace and other, and other things for women, and they hijacked it in the interest of sexual liberation and convinced, really convinced generations of people, sadly many, many young women, that kind of sexual liberation would lead to their flourishing and their happiness. And we've seen exactly the opposite. It's wonderful that you are trying to to turn back that clock and explain to girls and women that they are worth so much more than what uh, regular feminists want to offer them. It really is important. I mean, I, you know, boys deserve better too. Can I just add this? Oh, and of course. Better. Yes. <laughs> and um, and so we recognize that, but we also recognize where we're experts, and and that overwhelmingly girls have been over sexualized and victimized. I think this this latest thing with um, this horrible uh, website called Pornhub, Feminist for Life, has been fighting to stop the credit card companies, especially Discover now, from having their card access, you know, access all this pornography. The, images that these people were posting. People were posting it like somebody could post anything to YouTube. And people were posting the most vile things, gang rapes, children, child rape, women who were totally unconscious. And they would open their eyes and touch their eyeballs just to prove to men that they really weren't conscious when they were being raped. I mean, this is wow. beyond the beyond. It is so scary. And I think, you know, we have a, we just, we have a, a whole lot of girls who have been trapped, trapped in trafficking. You know, they, they do something stupid. Guys 
a lot of guys now expect girls to give them new pictures on Snapchat and or you know some other platform, and they do it once, and then they're being threatened. One girl was actually being threatened by other guys, saying, "Well, if you don't do this, I'm going to tell your mom." So I want a new picture. I want a new picture. Now there were like half a million of her pictures out there, and she can't get rid of them. And you know, she ended up living on the street with her three dogs. She doesn't feel like transferring schools wouldn't do her any good because everybody sees her picture evidently and she didn't want to be recognized so she worked at a you know fast food place so she ended up on the street recently there was a fundraiser for her when a New York Times story came out about this but if anybody out there has a Discover card I encourage them to contact Discover they can email them they have a little chat page or call them and, and say please take the policy of American Express which says we will not allow American Express our image to be on any pornography website Visa and MasterCard have just taken it down from Pornhub. I don't know where they are with these other websites, but pornography, when you're when you're buying a girl's image online, you're part of the trafficking problem. Mm-hmm. You're part of human trafficking. This is the new form of slavery. This is one of the new forms of slavery. Slavery is human trafficking. And these kids are being trafficked. And How does this coexist in the same world where someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is defending sex work as real work? How does that exist I, on, in the... What schizophrenic mind can hold, on the one hand, that women um, are worthy and dignified and should be protected and their lives enhanced, and, and at the same time, believe that prostitution is a, is a choice that can be made and with any dignity and safety. What you're describing is the natural extension of a, an illogical premise that all choices are good. All choices are not good. All choices are not equal because all people are equal, so therefore, all choices are not. And pornography and the spectrum of violence against women, including abortion, is not something that feminism, true feminism, believes in. Because the basic philosophy of feminism is nonviolence, non-discrimination, and justice for all. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean using using somebody or and not recognizing the value in oneself. I mean, I think when you when you think about girls and when when Joyce McCauley Benner, one of our speakers, when she was working with girls on the ground, I mean, it's a very different reality for them. They don't think like we're, we're thinking about the fact that they have inherent value. And we want to teach. We have another speaker, Cynthia Wood, who teaches that self-worth is inherent in each of us, and it's a pro-life value. It is a pro-life value. But unbelievably, I cannot tell you how many children have been abused in this country, and then therefore they get into relationships that are not healthy for them. They're trying to master basically something that went wrong to them, at, you know, w- was purposely done wrong, you know, at their expense. And so they try to master the event, but and they get into unhealthy relationships, and they're hoping they can do better. So, sort of like somebody gets in a car accident and they know it's their fault and they keep on thinking back what if I did this what if I did this what if and they end up in the same situation and so we've got to reach girls earlier and tell them how important they are and boys too but girls tell them how you know to they are worthy of respect and just for being there they are special just for being there so true and and men to be worthy of respect should be protecting women and not utilizing them I'm sure you agree yeah absolutely and I remember when I first came to feminist for life somebody was saying well abortion liberates men I kept on thinking, no, it doesn't. It does not. It robs them. It robs them of being a father. It robs them of the relationship of being a good dad, a good husband. Abortion isn't good for men either. It's good. It's not good for anybody. So it's not true. good for the perpetrators. It's not the ones who perform the abortion. It's not for the good for the people in the clinics. We know that from the work of, you know, Abby Johnson and then there were none. Abortion providers, advocates, predators, the teen media, 
including like Teen Vogue, the entertainment industry executives and their allies, including some legislators have all really been working hard for a long time to blur the margins of what is good, what is acceptable, and what is expected. And this generation, I mean, and we thought maybe, you know, 20 years ago, we thought there were things that were wrong in the music industry and vile and degrading to women. It has gone off the charts now. There are things that I can't even say on the radio that every teenage girl and boy knows what things mean. And it's the parents might not know, but these girls or these boys are hearing this stuff through the music, through the culture, online, with their friends. And, you know, it's just, we've got to turn this around. It's happening in suburbia. It's happening in urban cities. It's happening in rural areas. It's happening in Hispanic communities. Women are being trafficked in by different gangs. I'm just, it's really frightening. But we can do something about it. First thing everybody should do, well, I'd really like Feminist for Life to, you know, for people to support us, of course, feministforlife.org or womendeservebetter.com. But I also pick up the phone. How hard is it to pick up the phone and say to Discover? Please stop supporting pornography and the sexual exploitation of girls and unconscious women. And they can find out information about that on our on our news page at feministforlife.org about what to do. And there's also a bill where Senator Sass is demanding that Pornhub be investigated by the Department of Justice. And Feminist for Life is supporting that initiative. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking to Saren Foster, who's the head of Feminists for Life. So, Saren, I, I recently spoke to Lynn Neal. And she's at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. And she pointed out that MindGeek, which is Pornhub's parent company, has created a whole empire of exploitation. And that what we're really seeing in the past couple of weeks is that some of that infrastructure that props up the porn industry is finally crumbling. But there's much more to do, isn't there, Saren, than just attack the, the get the, well, you mentioned uh, the legislation that right. could be brought against them. But you know, Saren, what is Pornhub exactly for us, for, for, for me yeah. and my listeners that don't look at porn on the internet? Very, very, very large pornography website and it has a you know huge number of followers of people who go there and purchase the images of women who are, who are exploited and girls and teenage girls and people will go searching especially for younger girls they'll look for rapes Sarah really and who who uploads these images are is it the girls the women themselves or are there no, these are pornographers it, and pimps it, who do this yes it's the pornographers have been doing it those they're called uh, film you know people who are, who are filming them. And but it, it has been until recently, and this is a partial victory we feel that happened after Feminist for Life and the Center for Missing and Exploited Children have gone after Pornhub. That they took, they've stopped allowing people to upload their own films. So that's a, and they've taken down the ones that were not put up by them. But they still have a, a bunch of other ones up there, and they don't know if some girl from Russia is really 18 years old. And I mean, I'm not saying it's good to have girls doing so all sorts of things when they're when they've just turned 18. And Anyway, but I mean, how do they know their ages? How do they know that the people in those films aren't being drugged? How do they know they're not drunk? How do they know they're not being exploited by their boyfriends? How do they know that they're not being filmed in private and they don't even know they're being filmed? So these are just, this is a pure evil. That's how I best describe it. It's pure evil, exploitation. These are notoriously dangerous people and they, they use girls and women and they don't see any problem with it. And I do. 
And I think we should do our best to stop it to the extent we can to protect everybody, to protect their own daughters, to look out for other people's kids, to really make sure that our daughters are, uh, and everybody's daughters are, are really educated about the risks that are out there without frightening them to death, of course. But, you know, I think the best, you know, form of contraception I've always believed is, is uh, distraction and keeping kids involved with sports and plays and choirs and all these things. Those after-hour schools, when we're, when we're back to normal, quote-unquote normal, are really dangerous between the hours of 3.30 and 6 o'clock when mm-hmm. the parents come home. I think we have to sit there and I think agree. about what do we do during those times. Saren, Pornhub has gotten into trouble because there is a, a real consensus out there, at least on the fact that women and girls, girls underage shouldn't be included in pornography sites, and also women who are being molested against their will or held in bondage as, as sex slaves. But pornography all by itself, even if it's a girl over 18 who's fully consenting and and has every desire to be a porn artist or not artist a porn actress even so pornography is very damaging it's damaging to everybody who is involved in it and very i think especially the men who consume it do you agree well yeah it's interesting you're talking about the men who consume it and damage on them it ruins marriages Mm -hmm. it ruins relationships Nobody can can be everything that you know. People who've been perfectly posed and makeup and lights and camera and whatever they can't you can't compete and it ruins marriages and it's 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 eliminating that foundation. I just I think it's so damaging. Pornography is addictive. It has caused all sorts of problems for people economically. You know, people spending money. It's like gambling. Mm-hmm. You know, people spending money on this stuff and robbing their own children, their own wives of, of you know, the economic burden. But let's say they aren't even married. I mean, they're robbing themselves of a real relationship with real human beings. And this is not what we're supposed to be doing on this earth. I mean, this is it, it, to I, I don't know the psychology of every single woman who's doing this. Let's say they're overage, but I can I can say a lot of them have come from being underage, runaways, get into prostitution, whatever, and then they end up in film industry or whatever. And so there's a whole a whole way that um, some of these pimps will sit there and and groom them, or they have groomers, like, you know, allegedly Maxwell uh, had done for Epstein. They have people who, um, who control the girls for him. You know, there's a whole bunch of abortions that are not even being counted in this world because they're not being performed at Planned Parenthood. They're being performed by the pimps. Let me just say best girl, because I can't say what she's really called in that world. But his favorite girl, who's probably grown up a little bit more, maybe she's got a child of his, and she's the one who recruits new women for him. I mean, how sick can you be? New girls. Oh, Lord, and then that's he horrible. pretends he loves them and all this sort of thing. And then she's willing to do anything and she believes she's going to protect them. But they find out who's going to be the victim. They figure out who's going to be the most easily able to exploit and manipulate. They figure out what are the things that they want. What is it they want a daddy figure because they don't have one at home? Is it that they want clothes because they're poor? They want to be able to eat. They're just, maybe they're overwhelmed with money and they just slide into this. It, and then it escalates. It escalates. So the whole thing is built on a nightmare. I, don't, I mean, what, what if she's a drug addict and she's looking for for drugs. I mean, we don't know what's happening when it's an older woman doing this. Not that old. They don't they don't live that long in the industry. Oh, you know, such sad, such a sad topic, uh, Saren. Thank you for talking about it with us. All our listeners can go to feministsforlife.org to learn more about it. And as Saren said, if you have a Discover card, even if you don't, call the credit card company and tell them to stop doing business with Pornhub. So thank you so much, Saren, for joining us. And I hope you have a lovely Christmas with lots of blessings thank to you, you and your too. family. And you as well. Maybe 
really meaningful and memorable, even if it's a little different this year. So true. <laughs> and now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry. And it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with all of us this Sunday as the Church celebrates the Feasts of the Holy Family. On Friday, we celebrated Christmas, which is first and fundamentally the celebration of how God so loved the world and every human being that He took on human nature Himself so that He might fully restore us to the divine image and likeness. The priority of Christmas is always on God's coming into the world and our following the shepherds, the wise men, the angels, and the animals to adore Him. We make a special pilgrimage to Bethlehem and filled with awe, praise, and thanks to God for the greatest of all gifts. This year, in the midst of the pandemic and all its collateral hardships and losses, we recognize our need for God even more, and we're filled with gratitude that God with us, Emmanuel, has not left us alone, but has entered our reality in order to replace our darkness with his light and give us life in response to death. To celebrate the Feast of Christmas well, however, we also need to look at how we receive this gift of God. That's why the Church always has us celebrate the Solemnity of the Holy Family on the Sunday within the octave of Christmas, because we see in the Holy Family of Joseph and Mary how to respond to the gift of God, not just as individuals, but in the communion of our own family, of the family of the Church, and even more broadly, in the whole human family. It's highly significant that when the Son of God became man, when the Word became flesh, he chose to be conceived and born within a family of an already committed husband and wife. He didn't choose to come as a 30-year-old adult or a teen or an 80-year-old. He didn't choose to be born of a single mom or raised by two men or two women or some other arrangement. He chose to be born within a family precisely in order to redeem the family. The family is always in need of redemption. We see it with the first family of Adam and Eve how the devil succeeded in separating husband and wife from God and from each other. We see the immediate consequence of the devil's work in the next generation when Cain slew his brother Abel. But the family is meant to be the world's greatest image of God as a communion of persons in love. And the devil, therefore, never ceases to go after the family. We see it in how Herod sent his henchmen to try to assassinate the baby Jesus, terrorizing not just the Holy Family, but all the families of ancient Bethlehem. Surveys across the globe have shown that the devil has been rather effective as an in his attack on the family. During the pandemic, while some families have had the beautiful opportunity to spend far more time together, not just enjoying simple familial moments, but also in prayer to God, many others have been attacked by the evil one, leading to much higher rates of divorce, domestic violence, and other problems. We can spend many homilies on the problems confronting the family today, but it's more important to consider how God wants to strengthen the family and the means he's provided. The Feast of the Holy Family allows us to reflect together on the purpose of the family, what it means to be a husband and father, a wife and mom, a child or a brother and sister. The family has a purpose in God's plan. It's meant to be a school of love, a domestic church, a gift of God to help all the members of the family grow into the realization of who God created each of them to be. In the opening prayer of the Mass on the Feast of the Holy Family, we pray, O God, who we're pleased to give us the shining example of the Holy Family, graciously grant that we may imitate them and practice in the virtues of family life and the bonds of charity. All of us can learn so much from the virtues and love of the Holy Family, 
about how to make our families schools of love. Each family is called to be a holy family because holiness is the perfection of love. For family to be a school of love, it needs to model itself on the loving choice and priorities we see in the family of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. When we look at the Holy Family, we see several crucial elements about what made it holy. First and foremost, Mary and Joseph were centered on Jesus, the living Son of God. Every family is called to center its life on Emmanuel, God with us. The family that does grows in holiness. The family that doesn't, doesn't. Secondly, Mary and Joseph strived to do God's will and sought to help each other to do it. Mary said in becoming God's mother, let it be done to me according to your word. Joseph was constantly faithfully obeying God through the angel to take Mary as his wife, to flee with Mary and Jesus into Egypt, to return from Egypt after Herod's death, and to go to Nazareth. Jesus' whole life is likewise a lesson in doing God's will. St. Luke tells us that Jesus was obedient to Mary and Joseph, growing in wisdom and understanding, and obedient to his heavenly Father even unto death on the cross saying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Not my will, Father, but yours be done. The Holy Family was holy because it always sought to do God's will. Every family that wants to be holy is called to help each other to do the same. Thirdly, and related to both of these, the Holy Family was holy because it prayed. We read in the Gospels that the three of them would go regularly to the temple on the major feast to pray. They would go to the synagogue at least every Sabbath. It was obvious that they also prayed a great deal at home because when Jesus was caught among the teachers in the temple at 12, he was already capable of amazing them with his questions. Jesus became familiar with sacred scripture according to his humanity because both Mary and Joseph taught him Hebrew, like all Jews, by reading sacred scripture and meditating upon it with him. Like any family that wants to be holy, that wants to be what God calls it to be, it has to pray both going up to the temple as a family and then at home from the earliest days. The Feast of the Holy Family in the heart of the Christmas octave is an opportunity for each family to examine itself as to, as to the extent to which it's imitating the Holy Family in making Jesus the center of their family life, in praying together, in encouraging, inspiring each other to be obedient to God's will through their own example, as we see in the Gospel reading of the presentation for this Sunday's feast. It's likewise a chance for us to look at our parishes and the church to see if we too are living these familial virtues. Especially for those who are living alone, whose family members may have died or become estranged or living far away. Living this familial reality of the church with our brothers and sisters in Christ, within the love of the Blessed Mother whom Jesus gave us on Calvary as our mother, and in prayerful reliance on St. Joseph, all the more in this year of St. Joseph, recently proclaimed by Pope Francis, it becomes even more crucial. This Christmas, when because of the pandemic, many of us have not been able to get together with our family members like we're accustomed to, we've felt the need for the family even more. We've felt the need for our parish families and the familial nature of the church even more. We have all felt, most of us, through the pain of deprivation, the connection God always intends between the celebration of Christmas and the family. We thank God for making us even more aware of this crucial connection. And we commit ourselves as we celebrate the Feast of the Holy Family to do all we can to respond to God's help to fortify our families and parishes so that we might center our life on Jesus, God with us, on doing his will together 
and on praying as a family. To the crisis of the family that the world and the church face, God has given his solution. He has entered our family to redeem it. Let us come together as a family, the family Christ came to establish, to thank him this Sunday. Merry Christmas. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 